This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Dustin Broadberry, is that right? Correct. It's a great pleasure to have you joining me in the trenches. Are we in a war? Most certainly. <clears throat> World War Three. By all means, expand. Uh, well, I mean, it's a big story. Um, but, you know, we want to start talking about warfare. A renowned physicist in the 1950s told Robert McNamara that uh, World War I may have been considered the chemist's war. World War II may have been considered the physicist's war. And World War Three will be the social scientist's war. And I think that statement was taken by many people during the Cold War to refer to the Cold War. But um, if anything, you know, the Cold War was a kind of, you know, practice run for what we're seeing now, especially when we look at, you know, some of the the psyops, the counterinsurgency, um, the um, the information war that, uh, you know, has resulted in COVID that has, you know, taken at least one third of our brothers and sisters and put them under a, a hypnotic spell and has hacked into their minds and has implanted this seed of, you know, fear and enmity and prejudice and uh, has served to subjugate them under the spell of a narrative. Um, there, there has been a lot you know, going on over the past kind of, you know, since the Second World War, at least, I would say, that is a very clearly defined roadmap to where we find ourselves today. Um, I think this, this agenda has been in the making for a very long time. And there have been many different moves throughout the past few decades that have taken us to this place. Um, a large part of that, I would say, is, is the digital surveillance architecture. And the Internet, social media has played a, a really crucial role in where we arrive at today in both, you know, controlling the narrative in being the weapon of that information war, but also in bringing about a number of principles of social psychology to control us, okay, to, um, uh, to basically take away our ability to think for ourselves, to be mm -hmm. rational actors, to have personal agency, to make our own decisions. Uh, to be responsible for our own immune systems, okay? There is a massive hijacking of the uh, ideological landscape with, with COVID-19 that basically transforms, mm -hmm. you know, things that we, we took as being given, you know, rights that were, we thought were, you know, um, inalienable, um, ideas of, you know, what science is, what inquiry is there, you know, in a very short space of time, we have seen a radical transformation. And I suppose the most worrying part of it is what lies ahead. If, if, if things have changed so drastically in such a short period of time in 20 months, 
where are we going to be by 2030 with this? It's quite scary because, I mean, I I don't know of a time in recent history where the whole world is experiencing the same thing. You and I are on different sides of the planet right now, and we have the same story. Yeah, absolutely. And I think throughout history, you know, if we look to um, World War Two and the Allies fighting, you know, the axis of evil, there was always a very clearly defined enemy and a very clearly defined uh, hero, okay? And there, there was a polarization in terms of, you know, there's the good guys fighting the bad guys. Mm. What we're seeing with, uh, with the COVID-19 narrative is almost like the bringing about of a one world ideology. Um, this is the, you know, the wet dream of any uh, despot, dictator, you know, Stalin, Lenin, Mao Zedong, these guys would just, you know, marvel at the scale of um, uh, uh, the scale of this operation. And I think that that is, you know, it's, it's frightening for us. And there are very subtle nuances of difference between what we're all going through. Um, you know, our, our friends and allies in Australia, in Austria, in Germany, they, uh, you know, they are, have, they, they are having it a whole lot worse than we are, okay? Different nations are responding differently. This is, this is how the kind of play is unfolding. There is certainly a global lockstep. The language is the same whether you're in South Africa, in Canada, or in the UK. Almost like this thing was scripted from the very beginning. But there are, are very subtle nuances of difference in terms of, you know, the timeline of where these countries are and the extent of the restrictions that people are living under. And I believe that that is deliberate because there is always somebody worse off, right, than we are. You know, I'm not yet quarantined as people in uh, northern Australia are. Um, I'm not yet being fined for not being vaccinated as, as people are facing in Austria. There is certainly, it seems, a kind of good cop, bad cop going on. You know, Australia, Austria, Germany is the bad cop. Britain is the better cop. But I do think in the fullness of time that following a series of experiments, which these are effectively, there are a series of experiments to see how far they can push the people and how much the kind of silent majority uh, are going to tolerate, are going to accept. And, um, but I think all roads lead to the same place with this thing. Was Rome built in a day? <laughs> what they've certainly got going for them is the speed at which it's all kind of been rolled out. And when we look at the, the history of, say, um, counterintelligence operations, um, a, lot of, a lot of what they've been doing since the 1940s it sounds incredibly familiar to where we are today. The difference being is that 
The wars are no longer fought with nation states. They are fought against ideologies. And this is something that came about as a consequence of the U.S. in Vietnam fighting the Viet Cong. And they realized at that time that the enemy was going to be uh, grassroots movements. They were, the enemy was going to be activists. They were ordinary people who had the power to contest the establishment and transform the system and potentially cause revolutions. And when you look at, for example, the French in Algeria in the 50s, a very famous uh, French commander, a guy by the name of David Gulala, who was fighting in the Algerian war, he, he called counterinsurgency um, the basic tenet uh, of political power that in any situation, whatever the cause, there will be an active minority for the cause, there will be a neutral majority and an active minority against the cause. And the technique of power consists in relying upon the, the favorable minority for the cause to rally the neutral majority and to neutralize and eliminate the hostile enemy, the minority against the cause. And this, of course, intersects with what Matthias Desmet talked about mm. on your podcast, and that was the kind of 30-30-40 split, right? Yeah. And we are certainly seeing that expressing itself in this situation with COVID-19. The European Union have talked about... Um, 150 million people in Europe that are unvaccinated, that is effectively one third of the population. Now, to what degree those people are um, a minority against the cause or a neutral majority, we don't know. But we can assume that on the basis of what I just said, that that one third is the, uh, is the, the, the active minority. So we're a lot stronger than they would have us believe, right? You and I are chatting because of uh, your amazing writing. Um, and uh, in particular, um, that off-Guardian piece that I read uh, called The Anatomy of a Cult. Uh, it's exactly, it's exactly what I've been observing, what you wrote. What is a cult? Well, a cult, I suppose, is the kind of the, the radical uh, takeover of a social group by means of uh, the use of psychology and manipulation. Um, it is invariably an authoritarian command and control type organization. It, um, it relies on the very enthusiastic and unquestioning um, commitment of the cultists to the narrative. Um, it is very often a mind-altering experience that radically transforms uh, ideologies, belief systems. And if we look at cults throughout history, as I 
pointed out in the in the off guardian piece there is very often some um extraordinary event that accompanies the the foundation of the cult and that can be a biblical event and an extraterrestrial event or indeed a viral event as we've seen with covid-19 and to a degree cults they almost take on the the um the scale of a of a religion right or a, a spiritual system in bringing about this this new ideology right and transforming the belief systems of the 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 cultists involved um we have certainly seen a lot of this with covid-19 right if if we look at um there's a lady called Janja Lilich and she's a, a world renowned expert in in cultic studies she's she's written a book which is take called take back your life recovering from cults and abusive relationships and all of the key um uh factors that are all of the 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 key sort of um characteristics associated with the cult we can clearly see all of them within the covid-19 narrative we can see the authoritarianism uh we can see the manipulation we can see you know the enthusiasm of uh the cult members for uh the new ideology um there is also the the punishing of any form of dissent there is the rewarding of compliance and of course we're also seeing this the you know the fines the the social excommunication for refusenicks for for people refusing to comply um i don't know about you in south africa but here in the uk there has been so many government incentives from the very beginning of this thing to really kind of financially reward compliance yes um, the same okay and of course all of that it will run out at some point but you know this again is uh, you know it, it's people are being bribed people are being rewarded for their compliance um there is the kind of takeover of the psycho sociosexual right the the psycho sociosexual profile of a person's character and we've again seen that right we've seen churches being closed down here in the UK we have been prohibited from actually having our our partners staying the night um if they don't belong to the same household um we have been deprived of our personal agency um this has been a very important aspect of what has been achieved here um but certainly within the covid narrative we have we have gone an extraordinary distance from any resemblance to a a healthy society that we may have been you know pre covid and people have eagerly embrace that you know they have they have have um they have very readily onboarded to that ideology and i think there's been a lot of social psychology um at play that you know has kind of has created this situation how far back do cults go and do they do they maintain the same characteristics it's you know it's very difficult to kind of that's that's a tricky one because you know you could say that for example christianity is a cult 
okay, that anything that, um, you know, involves this, you know, uh, in incredibly convoluted narrative that promises protection or redemption, that seeks to um, subjugate a person's consciousness. Um, the research that I've personally done on cults, it looks at cults of the last, say, 100 years or so, you know, especially in the US, cults like the Heaven's Gate cult. Mm. And, you know... And, uh, and they, Jones, Jim Jones as well. Jim Jones, absolutely, was another one. And, um, you know, it's quite incredible how, how quickly people, um, they gave up everything that they had previously held to be, uh, you know, an important value system. Um, and as I covered in the article, you know, there are stories of ritualistic mass suicides that have taken place within these cult settings. Cult members have murdered their own children, okay? And um, I think that there is certainly a propensity amongst people uh, to be controlled by, you know, psychology and by powerful characters. And we, we've kind of seen that throughout history. I mean, you could say that, you know, the Soviet takeover, the, 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 the Bolshevik takeover, the cult of personality around, you know, Stalin and Lenin, that, that these were, were, you know, this was a cult takeover in, in, in you know, the former Soviet Union. How, how does the idea of a cult tie into the new normal, a.k.a. the Great Reset? Well, I think it's, you know, it is creating a almost kind of like apotheosis around COVID-19, right? That it's almost like a, a new religion. This is like the the second coming of Christ. You only have to go and sit outside a coffee shop to hear people talking about the narrative. People have been kind of, they've had their, their uh, neural circuitry hijacked by this narrative, right? We've, we've, we've seen, we've, we're living through an information war um, that, you know, is, is using very sophisticated uh, um, uh, architecture and, and apparatus to compound, compound a particular narrative, okay? And the, the, I would say that the COVID is very transformative, right? This whole notion of, you know, this public health emergency that isn't basically, you know, the, the fear, the, 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 the extremes to which people are going to in reverence, okay, of, of protecting themselves, of protecting others. You know, what we've, we've basically seen with COVID is the complete and utter subjugation of culture and value systems with a fear-based narrative. And, you know, this is not the first time that we've seen this. You know, it's, if, you, if you go back to the, you know, the beginning of the Third Reich and the rise of Hitler's Social Democrats, the Nazi Party in, in Germany, 
and the emergency that was brought about by the burning down of the Reichstag and the beginning of Hitler assuming power and taking away people's freedom and liberty and, and freedom of speech. Again, it was a, a very similar emergency situation. Are we living in one huge ash experiment? I think so. I think so, for sure. Um, and I think there are multiple experiments that are playing out. So there is, you know, Zimbardo's Stanford prison experiment. Um, there is, as you've mentioned, the, the ash experiment. And humans are sort of hardwired with this kind of evolutionary trait that is kind of naturally cooperative. We are, we are naturally cooperative. Um, we are looking for, um, we are looking to find common ground with, with our group, right? We, we, um, we do not exist in a vacuum. And I think that the narrative that is played out with COVID has been very clever in convincing people that, um, there is a majority that want to see a particular amount of compliance and uh, uh, conformity, right? This is where really, you know, I, I would say that if you were to compare the ash experiment to our current predicament, in the same way that, that Solomon Ash manipulated that experiment by putting his own confederates into the experiment to influence uh, the subject, then what we're seeing through COVID is the the narrative being manipulated by uh, the instruments of mass communication, mainstream media, social media, of course, plays an important role. And that is convincing people that there is a certain expectation out there that they are expected to comply because everybody else is complying. I don't think people are necessarily complying because they think it's the right thing to do. I don't think there really, really is a, um, a moral um, decision that is that these people are following. I think they're doing so because of they they want to conform. So they're they're doing it because of groupthink. They're doing it because of groupthink, absolutely. But they're doing it because they want. They're doing it from obedience. Okay, it's it's like they don't want to stand out. They don't want to be, you know, to be considered to do, be doing anything that is going to go against the grain, that is going to, to make them conspicuous. I mean, you know, we, we have only very recently had masks reintroduced to the UK. And, you know, we went from a culture of kind of 80% mask etiquette to, I would say, maybe 20%, depending on where you are. You know, in London, there is a lot more diversity there are more refuseniks here in London. You go out to the countryside and then there is more obedience, there is more conservatism. You know, people are more inclined to, to follow the rules. But it was incredible to see that overnight, people had gone from not wearing masks to, you know, 90% compliance in shops and supermarkets. Nobody is really questioning, you know, what, what they're doing. And, you know, there was a couple of, of very important 
I think what what the whole ash experiment kind of shows us is it shows us that there is a battle between free will on the one hand and our need to to conform on the other hand and there were some there were some studies done that kind of took ash's work to the next level that uh, like one of them is called it's voors and uh, schooler from 2008 and what it found was that participants who were induced to believe that they did not have free will were more likely than others to show so so uh, to show an inclination towards sociopathic behavior right so they were less inclined to be honest they were more inclined to cheat they were more inclined to steal okay and then there's other research that that showed that a disbelief in free will is associated with more aggression um uh that is associated with less compassion and i think this whole narrative sort of plays plays to disempowering us from having personal agency mm. from being in control okay from we go from a place where we are responsible for our health to a place where the government is responsible for our health people have been weaponized you know um our immune systems according to the narrative are, are no longer ours right that according to you know the 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 groundwork that has been created with you know the booster shots it's almost like we will we will be renting our immune system every 3 months from the government mm, outsourcing and, yeah outsourcing yeah so you know all of this seeks to disempower us i think people have been weaponized this notion of asymptomatic transmission you are no longer uh innocent until proven guilty um freedom is you know the exception rather than the rule so there has been a you know a significant transformation of you know value systems that, that once uh bound us as a as a healthy society and i think it's very dangerous where all of this is going and while you were speaking now i couldn't help but imagine a real disaster let's say i don't know a tsunami like that one that happened where was it was it in indonesia wherever it was i forget now it's not as though they needed to put up billboards to say there is a disaster happening and then go into the airports and see there's a disaster happening in a real disaster it should be self-evident you shouldn't require a multi-billion dollar marketing campaign does that add to the the group thing absolutely i mean the 2003 indonesian tsunami for sure i mean we we were warned from the, uh, we were warned here in the uk by boris johnson in his first you know lockdown speech around march 2020 that we would all know somebody we would all have family members who would die from covid-19 right and we would lose many people we would lose many friends many family members and that really played to our fears you know a lot of people who later came out in opposition against the lockdown against government you know interventions um they were they were taken by that they were you know that really played to a very large majority of of you know british people 
I would say 80 or 90 percent of, of people were genuinely scared and genuinely, you know, followed, uh, followed the rules and, and complied. Um, I think there was a very small percentage of us that kind of called that out from the very beginning, called that play out from from the get go. Right. What later happened is people completely forgot about that, right, about the severity of the disease. And of course, we did not have friends and family members, you know, dropping like flies. The people that I heard about that actually died, they were dying anyway. They were in their 70s or 80s and they were, you know, they were compromised. They had comorbidities. And though we locked down on the premise, you know, of the the level of emergency, we never revisited that as we've continued with the narrative. So, for example, yes, there were significant spikes in deaths here, you know, compared to this, you know, five year baseline of excess deaths in the spring of 2020. 2021 ha has been an average year for us here in the UK as far as excess deaths go, right? So we've never gone back to those original reasons why we locked down. We, we, nobody within, you know, the commentariat that the mainstream media has really questioned, where are those, where are the bodies piling up? And yes, that the, the entire narrative has relied on, you know, these, these instruments of mass communication. You know, COVID has largely been a, you know, a, a, a sort of, a marketing campaign, right, rather than a real-world event. Another thing you've mentioned um, is the banality of evil. Such a great term. What do you mean by that? So that was uh, that was Hannah Ardent's. Um, uh, that was Hannah Ardent and she, her her interpretation of the the trial of. Uh, Adolf Eichmann, who was considered one of the architects of, of the Holocaust, right? And, you know, she, she basically took from her experience of that trial, but also in her understanding of the Nuremberg trials, that, that it wasn't that, that these, these acts of evil were not created by, by, uh, they, they were not a result of somebody's, you know, a person's, um, uh, um, they, they were not, the, the person committing the atrocity, right, was part of a greater system of evil and corruption and violence. And ultimately, that that person was, was just effectively following orders, okay? <laughs> And that that whole system of authoritarianism and that rank and file. So, for example, where, you know, the British government are at war with Iraq, you know, uh, all those years ago, that the chain of command that is creating the order that is passed down through that chain of command, through the various different intermediaries to the person who's pressing the button and detonating the missile that by the time it reaches that person, that they are entirely absolved of, um, 
of the burden of responsibility for their actions because right. they are part of a bigger system, right? And they have they have been you know the obedience is the is the real thing here that is at play is that is that that obedience to authority is one of the most dangerous things that we have okay you know it wasn't hitler that went out and murdered you know millions of people during world war Two. it was the german people who were following the orders of hitler that were following the orders of the nazi command right and that was also picked up by you know stanley milgram in you know his experiment which kind of which took um hannah ardent's thesis on the banality of evil to the next level and it kind of what milgram wanted to achieve in in his experiment was was creating a an experimental world war Two scenario putting the holocaust into a clinician's lab and within his experiment you've got you know, very authoritative uh, figures um, giving orders for the subjects of that experiment to administer what later became lethal electric shocks. And, you know, he found that, yes, he, he basically corroborated everything that Hannah Arden had talked about in The Banality of Evil. I think a current uh, example of that would be, say, the police beating up anti-lockdown protesters saying you know we're just we're just doing our job absolutely yeah and they are and they're hiding behind their uniform and the new rules of engagement and what they what they have forgotten is everything out that we previously understood about you know law and order and the nature of what a crime is and what the nature of policing is Right, all of that is out the window, isn't it? And then again, groupthink comes into play because if one police officer decides to break rank, he gets yeah. uh, basically cast aside. You know, he's the apostate. Yeah, and of course, these guys in the police force—you know—it's more than just a job for them; it's a way of life. You know, when they socialize, they socialize with other cops when they go to christenings or weddings or barbecues, it is within the company of, of their, you know, of their police fraternity. So they have a lot of vested interest there. It's not just a job and it's not just a paycheck. It's everything to them. It is their way of life. And unfortunately, you know, you see the system kind of operates that we, we've always had a situation where, you know, a small group of elites are basically, you know, a small group are dominating a larger group, right? And throughout history, they've kind of done that through, you know, violence and coercion. Um, they've done that through kind of religion, ideology, spiritual systems, such as Christianity and, and you know, the, the whole sort of guilt-shame aspects or the kind of reward that... that punishment aspects of Christianity. Um, there are kind of two ways in which the system um, authoritarianism controls. One is overt, the other is covert. In an overt system, they kind of rule by violence and coercion. In an overt system, they, they rule by subtle nuances of control. And 
as we have sort of, I suppose, um, progressed with, you know, um, as a as a civilization towards a more kind of legitimate place, right? The system has increasingly acquired a need for legitimacy. So, you know, they 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 rule by um, this sort of you know taking our taking our freedom in exchange for security is is you know one example of that um and of course what they have today what they never had before is that they have they have us kind of under the 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 spell of digital technology right at no point in history mm. has the system been so close to the human experience you go back a few decades and sure we may have driven one of their cars or filled up our tank with their petrol or eaten one of their products. Nowadays, we're, we're reliant upon their products and services to communicate, to express ourselves, increasingly to socialize. And what has happened with, of course, you know, COVID-19, it, it has forced us increasingly into this digital architecture, right? More and more of our lives are playing out online. And then if you look at the whole kind of, you know, contact tracing, the NHS app or, you know, the Green Pass, you know, this is almost like taking that digital surveillance into the real world, right? It's like the, the digital architecture that was created, that was presented to us as, you know, something that would make our lives easier, that would liberate us, that would, you know, free information and bring us all together has over time and since it's you know um since it's sort of since the very beginning it has been um paving the way for this this you know surveillance state um and we didn't know we we were you know none the wiser we, mm. we should have known what was happening really excuse my dad joke but should we not refer to it as uh, covert 19 COVID-19, I like it. I like it. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. Uh, sorry, I broke the flow there. Um, in the anatomy of a cult, yeah. is propaganda a very powerful tool? Absolutely. I think so. I mean, it's propaganda has its roots in... World War Two, um, the the U.S. was like big on, on propaganda. They called it, you know, psychological operations uh, or psychological political warfare. Um, it's almost like an alternative form of warfare, whereby you know it's aimed, it's it it's it's aimed at uh, you know those ordinary people behind enemy lines, right? That might proved to be valuable to, you know, at the time, the U.S. in their fight against, you know, the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Um, by 1942, in the U.S., the, the biggest employer of, uh, of social psychologists became the U.S. government, right? That was the extent to which they were using, you know, social psychology and social research the extent to which it had become militarized right by um the war machine and by by intelligence agencies 
And you had during World War II the Office of the Chief of Psychological Warfare, OCPW. Later you had an organization called SORO, which was a special operations research office. And they called this the kind of gray area, which is when you would have the academics, social psychologists, anthropologists working in partnership with intelligence agencies, right? And that was at a time, obviously, before the Internet and before the, the means of mass communication, whereby, you know, the U.S. needed tools, they needed apparatus to... Um, communicate to enemy populations to, you know, transform their ideologies. A lot of this stuff was, you know, mastered during the Cold War when, you know, there was this imminent sort of doomsday scenario that played out, you know, at the end of the Second World War, the debris of all these kind of European empires, some of which fell to the, the Soviet Union, others to the West. And at that time, you know, this is when they kind of they took all of that, the stuff that they'd been doing with uh, psychological warfare and political warfare during World War Two. And they really sort of ramped it up and they had programs like there was one called Project Camelot, which is almost like a precursor to 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 the Internet in the sense that. Um, the ultimate goal of Project Camelot was to build a, a radar system for left-wing revolutionaries, a sort of like computerized early warning system that could predict and ultimately prevent revolutions before they happened. Because they knew at that time, you know, and especially as the kind of the years went by, the Vietnam War was happening, as I mentioned earlier, that it was grassroots movements, that it was you know, left-leaning political ideologies that, that presented the greatest threat to U.S. foreign policy interests, right? So a lot of social psychology was used during the Cold War. Um, and then as the, op and then again through, through the Vietnam War, and then as um, opposition to the Vietnam War grew in the U.S. during the 50s and 60s, and you had, you know, the anti-war movement, but you also had the civil rights movement. A lot of these weapons of, of psychological warfare and also counterinsurgency were then turned on the American people, right? And up until a point, you, you have, you know, codes of practice in the U.S. where they are, they are definitely going after foreign nations that the CIA, the NSA are targeting, you know, uh, Africa, Asia, Europe, South America. They are targeting those those countries that might fall to, to the Soviet Union. But they use the threat of communism in the US to basically go after US citizens. And um, you have kind of from the 70s onwards, 60s and 70s, you have kind of programs like COINTELPRO where they went after, you know, the likes of the Black Panthers, the Martin Luther King. Um, you, you, you also see that here in the UK from the 60s onwards. There was, you know, thousands of political groups that were infiltrated by police and intelligence communities. Um, and when you really look at the history of the Internet, you see that it kind of, the Internet evolved around 
the the rolling out of these counterinsurgency and psychological operations programs right so one of the kind of you know the internet comes out of darpa and one of the main architects of the internet or the arpanet as it was known at that time is jcr licklider right and he is both a computer scientist and a social psychologist and you know it was very clear from the early days of the internet that this would be a tool for listening into spying on and effectively co-opting people's ideologies right because at the time they couldn't really listen into the Viet Cong they they lacked the ability to kind of infiltrate you know those those communities and also they realized that at, you know each time that they would capture somebody belonging to the Viet Cong and they would try and turn them into an asset of you know US foreign policy that they couldn't they simply couldn't penetrate that ideology they couldn't penetrate what it was that made that person join that group become an insurgent and want revolution and you know it's arguable that the internet was sort of created to basically subjugate ideology to bring that under control from the outset to ensure that that people were you know that were prone to being dissidents that that they could be controlled through other means and um you know that there is a whole history of uh of intelligence agencies cooperating with silicon valley so for example you know if you look at uh, google you know it's uh, it's original mm. seed funding came out of the cia there was you know in the mid 90s when the digital revolution was underway and intelligence agencies were trying to understand um how the the digital revolution would um influence the way that that people would move online um they basically developed a series of programs to sort of predict the usefulness of of the internet as a tool for for capturing and framing those movements and one of those programs was called birds of a feather and it was it came out of something called um MDDS which is the um it was a sort of CIA NSA funding program but the whole birds of a feather program was was about capturing the way that kind of um flights of birds sort of fly in v formations or or sparrows kind of move move rhythmically in in specific patterns so they held loads of briefings with kind of university departments and in i think it was 1995 in San Jose they they basically they met with Larry Page and Sergey Brin and the seed funding that was used to set Google up came from came out of the MDDS program which was massive digital data systems and basically it was used to to frame that theory how people would move online how people could could be captured in their movements online and you know at that time Sergey Brin and Larry Page were building you know um their library their indexing system using the internet as its as its backbone and of course you know the irony with birds of a feather formation is that that is a kind of expression of complexity theory and or chaos theory which would suggest that you know the basic units of life whether it's the cells in your body the atoms in the universe 
colonies of ants, swarms of bees, you know, the way that cities evolve, that all of that happens through a kind of um, a self-organizing process, right? Complexity theory would, would say that, that the, the laws that govern a system is when you have kind of the lower level components of the system informing the overall system. And I think what this, what intelligence agencies were scared of was that level of human organization. And they understood, you know, that the, and to a degree, the internet was used to kind of, um, to, to frame that, to capture it. And you can see that, you know, with the way in which we, people use the internet, you know, um, there is a lot of groupthink. There is a lot of crowd psychology that determines, you know, what we say and who we say it to and, and how we express ourselves. What about fact checkers? What about the fact checkers? Well, that's, that's a huge part of it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that is a huge part of it. Um, and these guys are all financed by, you know, big tech. And I think there was an article recently that pointed out that it had come out as a kind of legal ruling yes. in court that, that the fact-checking was all opinion after all. Yes, and protected. It's, it's just unbelievable because what you're saying, what you're saying is that the system is so large and so interconnected. How, how is there possibly any hope for for people to see through it well i mean that's a big question eh i mean it, you know it kind of goes back to the stuff that you know is is important regardless of whether mm. we're you know facing the greatest existential threat we're gonna face you know ever or whether it you know we need to self-organize we need to to take control we we have become dependents upon a system right now we mentioned earlier the government kickbacks now not everybody is taking those kickbacks but we certainly are taking the kickbacks of digital technology you and i are using you know um icloud right now um i do all of my writing in google drive we we communicate on social media platforms you know, we, we, we are basically dependent upon that system because we are we are addicted. You know, mm. don't forget that digital media, the Internet, social media, it sort of plays on the same neural circuitry as cocaine, cigarettes, slot machines. Right. It's you know, we're talking about dopamine and oxytocin plantations here. We are all hooked on on the internet, on digital technology. But more importantly, we are increasingly living out our lives on there because um, we are, you know, it's a very alluring paradigm that makes things a whole lot easier and quicker. And I think for as long as we continue using these, these instruments and these tools, they've got us by the short and curlies, really. You know, there's no hope for us. Until we start building our own uh, means of, you know, communication. I mean, one thing, you know, the, the, the bigger answer to that question, I suppose, is that whilst there has been a very deliberate um, psyop to convince people of, you know, the legitimacy of COVID-19 and how important it is to follow the rules, there has probably been an equally um, um, 
um, an equally sort of sophisticated attempt to polarize the opposition, to put us all into various different camps, right? Whether it's, you know, it's the putting out of disinformation or, you know, playing different people against each other, different groups against each other. I think it's very important that the opposition gets organized. There are enough, you know, very smart and legitimate voices from, you know, science, medicine, academia, law, um, that lend a lot of legitimacy to the opposition cause. It goes back to what, you know, that, that quote I mentioned earlier about counterinsurgency, which is, you know, the art of their warfare is to use the 30% that are for the narrative to basically uh, convince the, the silent majority, the 40%, the neutral, you know, part of society. Because that's all we really need mm. is we need that 40% to stop wavering, blowing in the wind and to actually grow one, right, to, to grow a backbone. And, you know, if, if we could somehow unify the message, if we could use as much legitimacy as possible, you know, there are enough people out there, uh, respected academics, scientists, that, you know, that lend a lot of... Uh, that, that, that basically need to be brought together. That's, that's my view on it. What in your mind are some of the, the ways in which we can become apostates? Well, I think we, you know, it's very important to, um, we've got to keep, we've got to keep going. We've got to, we've got to keep going, you know, we've got to, we got to stick together. I think it's very important. We got to continue communicating. We are the resistance, after all, right? This is what we are, and you know the the burden is kind of on us because we, you know, we've done our research. We we know what's going on. We're, we're reading the form of this thing, right? And to a degree, we can predict where it's going. So. We got to stick together. We got to. We got to. You know, get organized, basically. Dustin, in front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? Well, I'll wait. <laughs> I see a revolution, man. I see that, you know, this thing isn't necessarily about winning or being right. It's about being woken from a mundane, mediocre existence and having some kind of higher, higher calling, you know, a greater purpose. Um, you know, we are sort of, you know, we're going to go down like warriors, right? And it might not, you know, we might not win on this occasion, but we will certainly, we will certainly contribute to an overall you know, victory and success. It might not be today. It might not be in 10 years, but our actions and the truths that we're following, okay, will help inspire those in the future that will take the baton for, from us, right? So, and I think that's a very important point. It's, it's not about winning, man. It's about having a fight and having, you know, having a principle 
you know, and something to live and die for, really. Where can people follow you? Uh, you can follow me at thecogent.org. Dustin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining Thank me you. in the trenches. Nice one, man. Thank you, Jim. Uh, don't go anywhere. All right. My name is Jim. This is Jim Wolfe, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.